Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. As we continue to go through the book of Revelation, we're seeing that Jesus is bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel because they've rejected him as Messiah. He's divorcing them for their spiritual adultery, and he's taking a new bride, the church. Most of the book of Revelation is dealing with events that happened in the first century A.D. So why are we spending time on it? Why bother thinking about this? Well, God has it in the Bible for a reason, and all of his word is beneficial and helpful to us. And just like the fulfilled promises and prophecies in the Old Testament still have relevance for us today, these events in Revelation also have relevance for us today. And this morning, specifically, we'll see what I believe is a very relevant a needed message about how Christians are to live in relation to a godless state or empire. So let's read Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Well, last week we focused on the first beast. We said that the first beast has a kind of dual identity. The beast is a man, and we're told it's the number of a man, but it's also an empire. Using the number 666 and the description that we have there of the history and the chronology and the character of the beast, we saw that John is indicating Nero Caesar, and behind him, the empire, is the Roman Empire. Well, this week, we're going to look at the second beast, and for most of the rest of the book of Revelation, the second beast goes by a different title. So we'll clear that up. But this second beast serves the first beast. And together, the two beasts serve the dragon, Satan. Today, we'll also see the mark of the beast, which is always a popular subject for novels and movies. But to see what John is really getting at, we need to understand it in the context of the book of Revelation. And hopefully by now, you have some good clues if you've been paying attention through the series so far. And we need to understand it in the context of the whole Bible altogether as well. 
Let me just give you a phrase from the text as we jump in this morning that characterizes this second beast. And if you grab onto this phrase, it'll help you to understand and remember the main ideas of the text and the message this morning. And here's the phrase. It's the description of the second beast. It comes from verse 11. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Now remember that. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. All right, let's begin then by looking at the identity of this second beast. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the second beast is called by another name. He's called the false prophet. Now, most everyone who studies Revelation, no matter what perspective you take on it, agrees with this. Uh, let me show you why briefly. These three, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, are kind of lumped together throughout the book. So here's three verses. Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Probably raises some questions in your mind. Just hold that till we get to Revelation 16. Revelation 19, verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. So in that verse, the false prophet is directly connected to the efforts to have people take the mark of the beast. Just like we read in our text in Revelation 13, that's what the second beast does. The second beast, the false prophet, we're talking about the same, same character here. And then Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there the three of them are together again. Hopefully it's clear that the second beast is the false prophet. And just like John does, now that we've introduced the second beast, I will just refer to it as the false prophet from here on out so as to not confuse it with the first beast. Okay? The first beast was from the sea. We've seen that the sea was connected with Gentiles. And the first beast was Gentile, Nero, Caesar, and the Roman Empire. But now the false prophet is from the land. And your Bible may say the earth in verse 11, but it's the same word that we've seen as the land previously in the book. If the sea indicated Gentiles, what does the land indicate? Well, it indicates Jews. The land, as usual, is the land of Israel. So this false prophet is Jewish. And remember, the beast had a dual identity, both a man and an empire. But with the beast, we had a very specific clue, the number 666, to tell us which man. There's nothing like that with the false prophet. So I think we're on safer ground to just focus on the corporate identity of this false prophet. And since this is a prophet, it has religious connections, and it's false, so it doesn't have the truth. In this book specifically, it doesn't have the truth about Jesus. Remember, that's what's at issue in the book, and it's Jewish. So we're looking for a group of Jewish religious leaders who don't have the truth about Jesus. We're just talking here about the religious leaders of Israel, the official temple religion of Judaism. They've abandoned the truth because they've rejected Jesus. 
Now remember what the whole focus of the book is. Jesus is bringing a legal case against Jerusalem and the temple, against Israel, because they've rejected him and murdered him. And the Jewish religious leaders fit the bill here perfectly. And that also explains the phrase that we've noted, looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. The lamb calls to mind the, the sacrificial system. And eventually, Jesus, the lamb of God. But the dragon is Satan. So this false prophet has the appearance of faithful religion, but its message is actually serving Satan. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Let's think about what John tells us about the allegiance of the false prophet. What does the false prophet do? Well, he exercises authority, the authority of the beast. He makes people worship the beast. He deceives people into making an image of the beast. He causes people to take the mark of the beast. He proclaims loyalty to the beast. So the false prophet simply serves the beast. He gets his power from the beast. Note that he has two horns, not seven. Okay? He's not nearly as powerful as the beast. The Jewish religious leaders are not as powerful as the Roman Empire. But he serves the beast faithfully. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture over and over. The Jewish religious leaders served Rome. They got their power and authority from Rome. And they did things to keep Rome happy. They made their loyalties very clear. Take a look at John chapter 19, verses 12 through 15 here. Pilate sought to release him, to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. There should be no question where the loyalties of the Jewish chief priests lie. They are loyal to Caesar. They're loyal to the beast. So what is the image of the beast then in this text? Is it a statue of some kind? I don't think so. Remember, the giant statue in Daniel's vision provides some of the background here, but that was just a vision. And the statue actually represented four empires. So I think the same thing is happening here, but what does it represent? Let me, let me do it this way. Let me describe what John says about the image here in Revelation 13. And you think about, while I read that description, you think about whether this sounds like another Bible story, okay? So listen to these details. First, it's an image. One thing that represents another. Second, it's given breath. Third, it speaks. And fourth, it is given power and authority to remove enemies. Now, what does that sound like? I think what we have here 
is a false Eden, a false Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. He was given the breath of life. He was enabled to speak, name the animals. And he was given charge to guard and keep the garden from enemies. So the picture being painted here is of an alternative humanity that has rejected God altogether. Who will they worship? Caesar. The empire. In other words, man. We will be like God. This is humanism. A false man who exercises false dominion. In the garden, Adam was to have dominion on the earth, to guard it and keep it, to tend it so that it would flourish. He and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Dominion exercised for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. But here we have false dominion. We have not flourishing, but restricting, regulating, preventing. No one can buy or sell without the mark. See, when humanism replaces the worship of God, dominion turns to domination, to tyranny. When humanism replaces the worship of God, dominion turns to domination. God's government is good. It's constructive. It is fruitful and productive. People flourish under God's rule. But this false dominion is the opposite. It oppresses. It burdens. It forces. It is dominion distorted into domination. How about the mark of the beast? What is it? Well, today you have many who think that it's a barcode or a QR code, or it's something embedded in the vaccines, or it's an implanted chip of some kind, or it's a digital currency and ID, any number of other theories. The mark of the beast is not any of those things. Okay? Not that all of those are good things. There's good reason to resist some of those things, but you don't need to identify them with the mark of the beast in order to recognize that they're bad things. You can simply argue that on biblical principles. No, the mark is a counterfeit of God's mark. And here's what I mean. First of all, the fact that the mark is on the forehead or on the hand should call to your mind an Old Testament passage. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me read this for you just in a couple of sections. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, note what is being said. Who is your God? Who do you love? Where do your loyalties lie? That's what the question is here in Deuteronomy 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How will your loyalty to God be displayed? How will it be seen? By how you respond to his law, his word. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand 
and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, many Jews took this literally. They put these words in a little box called a phylactery, and then they tied it onto their forehead or onto their hand to remind them of their commitment to God, to living a life that's characterized by his law. So when John in Revelation 13 speaks of the forehead or hand being marked with the mark of the beast, he's talking just simply about loyalty to the beast, a life that is characterized by commitment to the beast, to the empire, a person whose ultimate allegiance is to man, to the empire, humanism in opposition to God. But there's also something else that should come to mind at this point in the book of Revelation. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 7, we saw the angel who had the seal of God. And he said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the mark of God goes on the forehead in Revelation 7. Not literally, but they're marked out as belonging to God. They'll be protected because they belong to God. John is, is building on Ezekiel chapter 9, where destruction was coming to the city, and people were marked on forehead for protection if they were loyal to God, if they belonged to him. So when we come to another mark in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 13, another mark on the forehead or on the hand, we already have the idea of what a mark indicates. It displays who you belong to. In Deuteronomy 6, having God's law on your forehead or hand was a way of saying that your life is characterized by his law. What you think, your head, and what you do, your hand, displays loyalty to God's law. Because you belong to him. Because you're loyal to him. And the mark here in Revelation 13 is not a literal tattoo or a QR code or a vaccine or an implanted digital ID. It's a life that is characterized by loyalty to the beast. Instead of obeying God and his law, these people obey the beast, the empire. They're humanists. They've rejected God and maybe even unwittingly serve the dragon. But they proclaim their loyalty to the state. No king but Caesar. Those who don't have the mark, then, are excluded from buying and selling. Now, that might have temple worship in view, because to make a, a sacrifice at the temple, you had to sell your animal and buy one that was approved for worship, and the religious leaders of Judaism controlled all of that buying and selling in the temple. So if you couldn't worship at the temple, then you're on the outside of society. You're excluded. But I think it's probably broader than that, too since this is being written and read outside of Israel, it probably represents just simply commerce and participation in society. If you don't submit to the state as the ultimate authority, you may find yourself on the outside looking in. You have here the use of power to try to force people into conformity. A state that is making it difficult for people to simply live in the freedom that God has given them. A state that is encroaching on rights. 
buying and selling, normal commerce of life is something that God wants his people to participate in. He tells us in the Old Testament through his law how we're supposed to buy and sell in ways that are honoring to him. He teaches us the best way to do that, the best way to live in society. But here we have a state regulating the commerce and excluding people from it because they won't go along with the state's ideals. They're doing it in order to force conformity to their vision of the world. Hopefully you can see how that's happening in our world today. You can see it in ESGs, the Environmental and Social Governance Scores. You can see it in DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that are going on. Here in Revelation 13, though, don't lose sight of the fact that it's the false prophet, the religious leadership, that is supporting the beast. And today, we have plenty of religious groups who have adopted the agenda of the state. And I'm not just talking about liberal denominations. We have so-called conservative groups who want to compromise on a whole host of issues, from abortion to self-defense to CRT to economic freedom to gender and identity issues. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. And as God's people, we are called to be marked by the word of God. Resist the mark of the beast. Resist the influence of the world. Even when it comes from religious leaders, seek to be characterized by obedience to God's law. Now, there's one last connection before we move on to see what the, the main doctrine is here. One last connection that needs to be made, and that is with the number 666. We saw last week that that's John's code language to identify Nero Caesar. But there's also another association with this number. In the Old Testament account of the life of Solomon, we learn that Solomon started well, but then he drifted away from loyalty to God. He became like the kings of the world. At the height of Solomon's glory, we learn in 1 Kings 10, we have this description of his wealth and his accomplishments. And after the description there, everything goes downhill. He breaks all of the rules for kings that God had given to Moses. He accumulates too much wealth. He accumulates too many horses. He accumulates many, many wives. And many of them are foreign wives who lead his heart astray to worship other gods. But in the description in 1 Kings 10, it's interesting because the numbers are all round numbers. Solomon had 300 shields, and he had 200 large shields, and he had 1,400 chariots, and he had 12,000 horsemen. But there's one specific number that's not a round number that is included in all of this. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. The readers of Revelation, who were familiar with the Old Testament, would likely have recognized that number. This was Solomon's number at the point where he fell into apostasy, the point where he rejected God and followed human wisdom. 
the point where he left the law of God and became like the empires of the world. 666, warning of humanistic apostasy. Well, here's the main point of doctrine that we need to hear this morning. Loyalty to Christ means war with the dragon and his followers. Loyalty to Christ means war with the dragon and his followers. In Genesis 3, the war begins. The dragon deceives and recruits Adam and Eve, but God steps in with a promise. One day, a descendant of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the dragon. And the storyline of the Bible is the story of how that comes to pass. Here's a few examples. First, Moses and Aaron. Through Moses and Aaron, God defeated the great state power of Egypt with its leader, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was associated with the serpent. Remember, you can picture the headdress with the serpent on it. And he seemingly had all the power on earth, and he was oppressing God's people. But Moses and Aaron acted with loyalty to God, and God defeated Pharaoh and Egypt. Or think about Samson. Through Samson, God defeated the great state power of Philistia with their god Dagon. Dagon was a fish god covered with scales like a dragon or serpent. Philistia and their god Dagon seemingly had all the power, and they oppressed God's people. But Samson, in the final act of his life, acted with loyalty to God, and God defeated the Philistines and their god Dagon. Or think about the story of David and Goliath. Through David, God again defeated the great state power of the Philistines with their champion Goliath. The Philistines oppressed the Israelites. They had them living in terror of them. And when David fought Goliath, it's interesting, the Bible describes Goliath as wearing scale armor, like a serpent or a dragon. And Goliath dies from a head wound, recalling to mind God's promise in the garden, pointing forward to the coming Messiah. David acted with loyalty to God, and God again defeated the Philistines and their champion, Goliath. And the stories go on and on, over and over. God has demonstrated his superiority over the forces of the dragon. That superiority was displayed most clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan in that work. And the Bible tells us that he's on the throne right now, ruling and reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet. The victory has been won, but the battle continues until the rebels are defeated. So we should expect war. Loyalty to Christ means war with the dragon and his followers. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let me just point out, the suffering that was going on is suffering that's happening at the hands of the empire, the beast, in service of the dragon. And Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Loyalty to Christ means war with the dragon and his followers. We need to remember that there is no such thing as a neutral worldview. Everyone comes to the table with certain beliefs and presuppositions already in place. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our leisure, even our play, is a matter of serious concern. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And we are called to fight in this battle. Jesus' claim to kingship is not simply that he is the king of the church. It's not that he's the king of the religious realm. It's not that he's the king of Christians. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's all his. His law speaks to every area of life. There's nothing that it's somehow outside of his rule and reign. The theologian and prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's our mission objective to see every area of life brought into obedience to Jesus. To, another way to put this, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. So how should we put this doctrine to use? How does this account of the false prophet apply to our lives today? Well, for starters, we need to recognize that the state today is a false god. Now, the state is designed by God, and if it operates according to God's design, it's a good thing, a very helpful thing, but the state today that we live under follows the beast. It practices the religion of humanism. We look to the state to be our savior for all kinds of things. Take care of us. Give us things. In the last week or two, I've had multiple conversations with people where we observed that Whenever something arises that people don't like or that they see as a problem, the reflex response seems to be, there should be a law. No, there shouldn't. And just the bare fact that that's our first response should reveal to us that functionally the state is our God. We're looking to the state for the solution. But the state is a false God. And Christians are called to say so. We're to speak truth. We're to call out the state when they encroach on territory that doesn't rightly belong to them. God's given authority in different realms to different people or groups. We talked about this before, but let me just briefly kind of give you a refresher. All of us are supposed to have self-government, right? To govern ourselves according to God's law. But then 
in our relationships in the world, there are three realms of government that God has given to us. He's given us the family government. So the father is to lead the home and each person in the home is to understand and operate by their God-given role in the family. God's also given us church government. And he said how the church is to be ruled and how it's supposed to operate. And there's a realm of things that the church rules over. And God has given us the state government. And he said how the state government is to operate. He hasn't given us the exact forms of government. He has given clear principles for rulers. And he's defined the realms over which the state has authority. And the state is not to encroach on the realms of the church or the family or the individual. But in the church today, we have such a shallow understanding of the state. We think that we are to simply obey and support the state no matter what. Well, John would be horrified. Paul would be aghast. We've lost our prophetic voice to confront the state when it oversteps its bounds. Not only that, and this is where it ties into our text today, but so many religious leaders have taken it upon themselves to blindly support the state and to encourage their followers to do so as well, as if that is Christian virtue. But the church, and by the church, I mean you and me, is called to a prophetic role, to speak truth to a culture that doesn't want to hear it. We need to confront false believers who say false things. And the reality is that there are false believers in the church. We speak truth and we confront error. Why? Well, one reason is for the testimony of Jesus Christ in the world. Often things are said and done in the name of Christ that are not in line with God's law and God's word. And we are called to bear witness to the truth about Jesus. Remember what John told us at the beginning of the book of Revelation? He was exiled to the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, John said things that were true, but unpopular. True things about Jesus, but things the empire didn't like. Things people needed to hear, but that the dragon and his followers wanted to squash. But John said those things. Another reason we should be willing to speak up is for the discipleship of younger believers. Those who are older in the faith have responsibility to teach and train. Even by our example, younger believers are more prone to be led astray by false teaching. So we need to speak truth for their sake. But not only should we resist false believers, we also need to speak truth confronting true believers when they're out of line. Now, hopefully we are all open to respectful correction. And if so, great. But often that's not the case. And then a not so respectful correction may be in order. And before the tone police and the nuance brigades speak up to tell us to be nice, let me just point you to the prophets in the Old Testament and remind you how they spoke to God's people. Sarcastic, confrontational, making their point forcefully and clearly. And you might say, well, but doesn't all that change in the New Testament? No. Have you ever really listened to the sarcasm of Jesus? To how he mocks the religious leaders who should have known better? 
Have you read Paul and his harsh words for those who endanger the gospel? When Peter, who was a dedicated follower of Jesus, tried to deter Jesus from going to Jerusalem, where he would suffer and die, what did Jesus say? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At that moment, Peter was a mouthpiece for Satan. Looks like a lamb. Speaks like a dragon. Yes, it is true that there are always people who want controversy, who are just looking for a fight. But let me tell you, we're in a fight, whether you were looking for one or not. And we need to speak accordingly. J.C. Ryle says, there's one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that is false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest. And Paul says in Galatians, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In this text in Revelation 13, what we are seeing is the religious establishment supporting the state and leading people to have allegiance to the state when they should have allegiance to Christ. Let me give you an example of what that looks like in our world. And in the week where Roe has been overturned, this is an appropriate example, because while we truly do celebrate the defeat of Roe, the work is far from over. We talked in our class hour a couple of weeks ago about what happened to House Bill 813 in Indiana. It was a solid and biblical anti-abortion bill that was on track to be adopted by the Louisiana legislators, but then it was attacked and defeated at the last minute. By whom? By pro-abortion groups? No. It was attacked and defeated by the pro-life groups so-called right-to-life groups. A public letter was put out just before the vote, a couple of days, titled, An Open Letter to State Lawmakers from America's Leading Pro-Life Organizations. And the letter was signed by many different right-to-life groups, including the National Right-to-Life Organization, the Ohio Right-to-Life Group, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Let me read you a few excerpts from the letter. The tragedy of abortion isn't limited to the unborn child who loses her life. The mother who aborts her child is also Roe's victim. She is the victim of a callous industry created to take lives. Women are victims of abortion and require our compassion and support as well as ready access to counseling and social services in the days, weeks, months, and years following an abortion. As national and state pro-life organizations representing tens of millions of pro-life men, women, and children across the country, let us be clear, we state unequivocally that we do not support any measure seeking to criminalize or punish women and we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in legislation. 
We must ensure that the laws we advance to protect unborn children do not harm their mothers. Now, let me give you four observations about this. Number one, that mindset undermines the gospel. It tells women that there's no guilt. And therefore, there's no need for repentance and there's no need for the gospel. It undermines the message of the gospel. The beauty of the message of the gospel is that there can be forgiveness for sins. Whether the sin is the things that we might normally list or the sin of abortion, there can be forgiveness. There can be God's grace. But if you tell the woman that she's a victim, that she's not guilty, then the gospel is undermined. Second, how does this reasoning line up with God's law? And the answer is, it doesn't. We must ask the question, by what standard? How are we to measure these things? by God's law, not man's. And God's law is unambiguous. All human lives are in the image of God and have value because of it. We don't get to say that some lives have more value than others. If you take the life of a 14-year-old, that's murder. It should be treated as such. If you take the life of a four-year-old, that's murder, and it should be treated as such. If you take the life of a four-week-old in the womb, that's murder, and it should be treated as such. Or do we not really believe that a baby in the womb is fully human? Third, imagine using this kind of reasoning on something like drunk driving. We want to outlaw drunk driving, but we would never think of prosecuting the drunk driver they may kill someone in the course of their drunk driving, but they need our compassion and support, not prosecution. We wouldn't argue that way. Well, what about sexual abuse? Well, the abuser may harm someone, but we shouldn't prosecute the abuser. The abuser is the victim. They just need support and compassion. And fourth, at the risk of sounding pragmatic, with this kind of reasoning, abortion will never be eliminated. A woman can still obtain the pills or other means to kill her child herself. We're really dealing with the issue and will never eliminate abortion by this means. That kind of reasoning is unbiblical, it is unjust, and it goes against the holy nature and character of God. Now, I mentioned that one of the groups that signed on to this letter was the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Let me show you where this unbiblical approach leads. When you reject God's standard in favor of a man-made one, and you try so hard to be accepted by the world, to go along with the empire, Here's the path you head down.
The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission recently announced their conference theme for next year. Uniting to make abortion unnecessary. Unnecessary? Currently it's necessary because sometimes you've just got to kill your kid. Looks like a lamb. Speaks like a dragon. This is anything but a biblical worldview. This is religious leadership serving the beast, the empire, and speaking the language of the dragon. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. And my reason for bringing this up this morning is this. We need to be criti critically evaluating the role of the church when it comes to support for the agenda of a godless state or empire. The apostles John and Paul would have words for this. We must maintain biblical faithfulness and boldly proclaim biblical truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it. Please do not miss. Let me go back to that first point. The gospel. The gospel is the answer for all of these issues. But if you undermine God's law, you lose the power of the gospel. If we excuse sin, we're not calling people to repentance. The beauty of the gospel is that it actually deals with sin. It deals with the offense against the holy God. True full, complete assurance of pardon. Scottish theologian and pastor John Knox set a good example for us of resistance to a state that's in a disobedience to God. Rather than going along with the state or becoming a mouthpiece for the state, Knox boldly proclaimed biblical truth. In fact, he was forced to flee Scotland for his life because of it. When he fled, he went to Geneva in Switzerland, where he was able to learn from men like John Calvin and others. And in 1558, in Geneva, Knox wrote four important tracts about resisting tyrannical government. One was directed to England, where he had spent some time. Three were sent to his native Scotland. And those three were designed to be read together, and each one was for a different level of society. One was for the queen, one was for the commonalty, the, the common people, and one was for the nobles, the governing class. I'm going to finish this morning with a quote from each of these three to challenge us as the people of God regarding our posture toward a state that positions itself in opposition to God and his law. And don't get excited. I'm not almost done. Some of the quotes are long. Bear with me. First one's not. So first, in Knox's letter to the Queen Regent of Scotland, Knox points her to Ezekiel chapter 22. God's judgment is about to fall on Israel because they're disobedient to him as a nation. And after 29 verses detailing all of their sins, the Lord says this. And I sought for a man among them 
who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So Knox goes through and he reproves the queen for her sins that line up with the sins in Ezekiel 22. And as he summarizes the sins that are listed there, he concludes with this. He says, finally, a universal silence of all man, none being found to reprehend these enormities. Knox saw that not only was it a sin for the queen to commit the same errors as Israel, but it was also a sin for those who saw it to remain silent. Far from being a mouthpiece for the state, God's people were to speak God's words in opposition to the state when the state was in opposition to God. Second example, in his letter to the common people, the commonalty of Scotland, Knox pointed to biblical examples of, of three different stories. The days of Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, this is a, a lengthy quote. It's going to go on for like five slides, so bear with me. Here's what he writes. But did any escape the plagues and vengeance which did apprehend the multitude? Let the scriptures witness and the histories be considered, which plainly do testify that by the waters of the flood, all flesh in the earth at that time did perish, Noah and his family reserved that none escaped in Sodom and in the other cities adjacent, except Lot and his two daughters. And evident it is that in that famous city, Jerusalem, in that last and horrible destruction of the same, none escaped God's vengeance, except so many as before were dispersed. In other words, the church that had left because of Jesus's prophecy. And what is the cause of this severity seeing that all were not alike offenders. So Knox is asking the question, why did God do this? Why, why, why was everybody destroyed when not everybody offended to the same extent or in the same way? Let flesh cease to dispute with God and let all man by these examples learn betimes to fly and avoid the society and company of the proud condemners of God, if that they desire not to be partakers of their plagues. The cause is evident. If we can be subject without grudging to God's judgments, which in themselves are most holy and just. For in the original world, none was found that either did resist tyranny and oppression that universally was used, either yet that earnestly reprehended the same. In Sodom was none found that did stand against that beastly multitude that did compass about and besiege the house of Lot. None would believe Lot that the city should be destroyed. And finally, in Jerusalem, was none found that studied to repress the tyranny of the priests who were conjured against Christ and his gospel. But all fainted, all kept silence, by the which all approved iniquity and joined hands with the tyrants. And so we're all arrayed and set as it had been in one battle against the omnipotent 
and against his son, Jesus Christ. Knox is saying, not only is it a sin to remain silent in the face of a tyrannical state, you can expect to be caught up in the judgment when it falls. And then third, finally, in his appellation or letter to the Scottish nobility, the ruling class, Knox writes this kind of perceptive analysis of the mindset of the people in his day. And it still applies in our day. Here's what he says. For now the common song of all men is, we must obey our kings, be they good or be they bad, for God has so commanded. But horrible shall the vengeance be that shall be poured forth upon such blasphemers of God, his holy name and ordinance. For it is no less blasphemous to say that God has commanded kings to be obeyed when they command impiety than to say that God, by his precept, is author and maintainer of all iniquity. True it is, God has commanded kings to be obeyed. But like true it is that in the things which they commit against his glory, or when cruelly they rage against their brethren, in other words, when they become tyrannical, even if it's not a specific violation of a specific biblical law, the members of Christ's body, he has commanded no obedience, but rather he has approved, yea, and greatly rewarded such as have opposed themselves to their ungodly commandments and blind rage. The false prophet the Jewish religious leadership became a mouthpiece for the beast. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. And some in the evangelical church are doing the same today. Your responsibility and mine is number one, discern and not listen to those voices and number two, to speak up with faithful biblical truth. So may God grant us the wisdom and the courage to do so. Lord, I thank you for the message of Revelation 13. And when we dig in and see what's there, it really does all of a sudden become incredibly relevant and a deep challenge to us today. May we be people who are loyal to Christ and therefore are at war with the dragon. May we be faithful in that fight. May we proclaim your gospel in order to call the followers of the beast to become the followers of Christ. Your gospel is glorious. It offers an amazing forgiveness and transformation. Your grace covers a multitude of sins. Our sins are never so great that they cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. Help us to proclaim the wonder of that gospel. Help us to follow you, our King, faithfully. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.